0: This morning is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. You can find this on page 1080 in your pew Bibles, and it uh, will appear also on the screen. Hear the Word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight Lord Jesus, you promised that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, that you would be present with them. And so we gather here this morning. We gather around your word and around your table and, and we pray that you would be present to us this morning in the preaching of your word and in your sacrament. Lord, we pray that as we gather in this way, as we gather as the church, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that that Holy Spirit would bind us to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as different members of the same body, and that that Holy Spirit would open our eyes and open our ears to the truths of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen. So this is the first Sunday uh, of a new year. It's the first Sunday of a new decade. And today I start a new series of sermons. Over the coming months I'm going to be preaching through the Acts of the Apostles. And I'm excited to launch into this book because... The book of Acts was my first favorite book of the Bible. I remember very clearly as a boy the supernatural thrill I would get reading this book. The bigness of the miracles, the boldness of the apostles, the church spreading like wildfire. It was a very exciting book for me as a young man. Now, there is bigness and there is boldness in the Gospels, of course, the bigness and the boldness of Jesus. But somehow, the bigness and the boldness of Jesus, the Son of God, well, somehow that seems less remarkable, less surprising, less astounding, because, well, Jesus is God. And what else would you expect from Jesus but big and bold? But in the Acts of the Apostles, now we're talking about, just regular people, people like you and me. And somehow that makes their bigness and boldness all the more extraordinary. Somehow that makes their miracles all the more hair-raising. We should feel a supernatural thrill when we read the Acts of the Apostles because here we see ordinary people... In the early days of the church, filled with the Holy Spirit and crazy stuff starts happening. As we work our way through this book, there should be many moments of genuine amazement and wonder. I really do believe that coming to church should be a hair-raising experience. I really do believe that coming to church should give us goosebumps. If for no other reason than that... Jesus is here. Jesus promised that wherever two or more are gathered in his names, that he would show up. And if Jesus is showing up in the same room where you are, and that doesn't give you goosebumps, then you might want to check your pulse. Because you're probably dead. And I don't mean just spiritually dead. When we come to church, we should feel the thrill of being in the presence of the creator of the universe. We should also feel the thrill of hearing the word of God. The creator of the universe decided that he wanted to communicate to the people that he made. And we get to hear that communication. I hope that thrills you. And there's a third wonderment to being in church. And that has something to do with the Holy Spirit being active inside of us individually. insofar so far as we're united to Christ and are part of his church. That's a thrill that doesn't come from the outside, but that comes from the inside. Yes, Jesus is here. That's something that should raise your blood pressure. Yes, the Word of God is here. That's something that is extremely exciting. But God is not only outside of us, He is also inside of us, working in us individually. Through us, this very strange amalgamation, which is called the church, is the presence of Christ in the world. And that should cause some high voltage to run through our nervous system. What we're going to see in the book of Acts largely is about this third thrilling aspect of the presence of God because the book of Acts is all about the Holy Spirit running like high voltage through the nervous system of the church. The book of Acts is a history of God's people filled with the Holy Spirit and they're jumping like live wires. But here's the really crazy part of this. The book of Acts is actually about us. People like us. We are the church. We are the congregation of Christ. Now it's wonderful to read in the Gospels and to see the mighty deeds of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to read in Exodus and in the Chronicles and see the mighty deeds of Yahweh. But in the book of Acts, what we witness are the acts of people, regular people like us. People who have been possessed by an alien spirit who happens to be the creator of the universe. And when these people are possessed by this spirit, you'll see that they don't behave like regular people anymore. They behave in a new way. They begin to behave like a church. Every time you have the privilege of being in the midst of the church, being in the midst of a fellowship of sinners who are possessed by the Holy Spirit, you should be thrilled. The hair should stand up on the back of your neck. Your heart should race. You should have the heebie-jeebies. This morning, I'm going to offer just some introductory comments about the Acts of the Apostles, And then I'm going to lift up just one point from the first 11 verses which I read for you a few minutes ago. Let me begin by talking about the author and the audience of this book. We call it a book, but of course that's just a manner of speaking. It has 18,450 words, which makes it longer than a short story but shorter than a novella. You can read the whole of the Acts of the Apostles in one sitting if you want to. The Acts of the Apostles is an anonymous work. The author never names himself. But since the second century, the work has been attributed to Luke, a physician and a co-worker of the Apostle Paul, who is mentioned three times in Paul's letters. Now, we all know the name of Luke because of the Gospel of Luke, which is also an anonymous work. And from clues inside both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, we know that these two books were written by the same person. In fact, they are two parts of one single larger work. Listen to these opening lines from Luke's Gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, that's Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. And then we have the opening words of the Acts of the Apostles. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are part one and part two of a single book. And this two-part book was written by Luke, who was a physician, and he was a companion of the Apostle Paul. Now what about the audience of this book? Who was this two-part book written for? In Luke one three and Acts one one, the author directly addresses someone named Theophilus. But who's that? The name Theophilus means friend of God, so some have suggested that Theophilus is not the name of a particular person, a real person, but rather that this is some kind of symbolic name. That Luke has written his two part book to all people who love God or or are friends of God. Now that's a possibility, but it's not a necessary interpretation. Theophilus was a perfectly ordinary name at that time, and the use of the courtesy title, Most Excellent Theophilus in Luke, suggests that the author was addressing a real person. The Gospel of Luke says that it was written so, quote, that you may have certain T concerning the things you have been taught. And that suggests that Theophilus had received some training regarding Christian doctrine, but that perhaps he was not yet a Christian himself. This is someone who's interested in Christianity, but who still has some questions that he wants answered. In preparing my sermons on Acts, I'm using the uh, well-regarded commentary by F.F. F. Bruce who was a professor at the University of Manchester in England, based on internal clues and the complexity of the language in Luke and Acts, Bruce concludes that Theophilus probably was, quote, a representative member of the intelligent middle class at Rome. We're going to have lots of time to work our way carefully through this book, but I want to alerts you to a couple of themes that we're going to encounter again and again in the months ahead. The first theme is that Christians are peace-loving, law-abiding people. Now whether you love the Roman Empire or hate the Roman Empire, one thing you have to say about the Roman Empire is that it was very orderly and peaceful internally. The Roman Empire was a law and order kind of place. It had laws and regulations in operation and those were followed with great precision. As we're going to see in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen, inadvertently triggers a legal process that takes years to unfold, that requires great expenditures of money by the Roman Empire, that necessitates his transfer under armed guard from Judea all the way to Rome, a distance of over a thousand miles. In a less orderly country, in a place that's less law-governed, someone like Paul would have simply been killed by the local ruler, without regard for legal process. Orderliness was a virtue of the Roman Empire. But the Christian community, it seems, was born in conflict. The founder of the religion, Jesus of Nazareth, was executed by the Romans. As we will see in the book of Acts, wherever the Christians go, conflict and disorder seems to erupt. And so, among the pagan Romans, Christianity, this new religion, had a bad reputation. A reputation for disorder and lawlessness. And this reputation was widespread. As the author of Acts writes about the church, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. That's Acts twenty-eight, twenty-two. Much of the book of Acts is a defense of the church against this reputation. The author takes great pains to show a Theophilus, who probably is not yet a Christian, that the church is law-abiding and peaceful, and that the conflicts that have arisen around the church have not been caused by the church, but have been caused by other bad actors. So that's one of the themes that we're going to run into again and again in this, uh, in this book. A second theme that uh, will show up in this book, uh, uh, throughout the book actually, is the harmony and the unity of the apostolic teaching. The apostles, though they were 12 plus 1, spoke with a single voice and they speak with a single voice because they are animated and activated by the same Holy Spirit. Throughout the history of the church, there have been individuals who have lifted up or favored one part of Scripture to the detriment or the exclusion of other parts of Scripture. There have been people who have identified some portion of Scripture, some subset of the Word of God, and said, this is the important part, and you don't have to pay so much attention to those other parts. In fact, every heresy that the church has ever suffered has been the result of one portion of Scripture being emphasized while other portions of Scripture are overlooked, ignored, or devalued. Two extreme versions of this that you might be familiar with are Thomas Jefferson's Bible and the Swedenborgian book called The Word. Thomas Jefferson Loved and admired Jesus of Nazareth. He thought that Jesus was a great moral teacher, and example for humankind. But Jefferson rejected anything miraculous or supernatural. He refused to accept, for example, that Jesus had the power to walk on water or to raise the dead. And so Jefferson edited the Bible and he published the Jefferson Bible, which is rather slim, It contains all of the beautiful moral teachings of Jesus, but it leaves out all of that miraculous stuff. Immanuel Swedenborg, the founder of the so-called new church, rejected the Christian teaching of salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ and instead taught that we are saved by obeying God's law. Salvation through works, you might say. So if you go into a Swedenborgian building, you will find a red book in the pews, and on the cover it will say, The Word. But inside that book, you won't find any of the writings of the Apostle Paul. All of Paul's letters are excluded, because you can't read more than a few sentences of Paul without running into the doctrine of salvation by grace. So out he must go. Now, those are extreme versions of selective reading of Scripture. There are more subtle versions of this as well. One widely accepted subtle editing of Scripture is what is known as the lectionary. A lectionary is a three-year calendar of daily and weekly Scripture readings. It's used in all Roman Catholic congregations and in many mainline Protestant churches. For example, the gospel reading for today in the lectionary, this is the second Sunday of Christmas, is John 1, verses 1 through 18. And in every Roman Catholic church around the globe this morning, and in many Protestant churches as well, this morning's sermon will be based on that text. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with a three-year calendar of readings through the Bible? Well, the only thing that's wrong with it is that the lectionary doesn't contain the whole Bible. Some parts are left out. And you really have to ask yourself, who gets to decide what's included and what's left out? Orthodox Christian teaching has always been a matter of what we call the whole council of God. And heresy has always been a matter of emphasizing one portion of Scripture to the exclusion or the neglect of another portion. And what makes heresy so seductive is that it is partly right. Heresy is partly right, but it is unbalanced. And it does not reflect the whole teaching of the Word of God. The earliest heresy that the church had to deal with is called the Marcionite heresy. Marcion was actually the first person to publish a canon, a list of the books of the Bible. He loved Paul, but he excludes Peter and James. He also threw out the whole Old Testament. And in the end, the Roman church excommunicated him around 144 AD. In the Acts of the Apostles, we will hear not just Paul, not just Peter, not just James, not just Stephen. We're going to hear a range of apostolic voices, and we will hear them speak in unity and in harmony. And they speak with one voice, not because they are clones, but because they have been activated by the same Holy Spirit. And the message that they bring is simply the full message of Jesus Christ. And all of that brings me to what might be the most important point of this morning's sermon. If you have your Bibles handy, take a look with me at the very first verse of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. It reads this way, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first book, you will recall, is what we now call the Gospel of Luke. It tells the story of Jesus from his virgin birth until his ascension into heaven. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Wait a second. What does that mean he began to do and teach? Is the author of Acts suggesting that Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension into heaven? That's what it sounds like. Listen to it again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have Dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Why doesn't the author of Acts say, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus did and taught? After all, Jesus is up in heaven now. He's no longer on earth. He's not walking around anymore doing and teaching. Or is he? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This way of speaking is so strange that I had to go back and examine the original Greek just to make sure there wasn't a mistake in the translation. And sure enough, the Greek is as clear as day. The verb that is offered there, erxato, erxato, is a common verb in the New Testament, and it means precisely that, to begin. Jesus began to do and to teach all those things that we heard and saw in the Gospel of Luke, but that's not the end of what Jesus did and taught. That will be continued in the Acts of the Apostles. Now we're going to talk about this again next Sunday because it is so important, but I want you, what I want you to take away with you today is a little supernatural wonderment. I want you to feel some hair-raising chills when you realize that Jesus was alive and acting and teaching, not only in the gospel, but also in the early church. He didn't disappear or go silent. And what we're going to see as we work our way through the Acts of the Apostles is that the presence and the teaching of Jesus in the early church is what fired and drove that church out into all of the world. The church was full of Christ. And because they were full of Christ, they went out and they bore witness to their own experience in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very end of the earth. It isn't the apostles who did that. It was Christ inside of those apostles who did this. The book is called the Acts of the Apostles, but we could call it the Acts of Christ. Because Christ is the actor in and through the apostles. Peter, Paul, Stephen, James, they all would be forgotten today if it were not for the presence of Christ inside of them which fired them and drove them out into the world to proclaim the gospel. Because they were filled with Christ, they changed the world. So let me bring this home to Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church If HVPC is a church and is not a church reenactment society, then Jesus is as present in this church as he was in the early church described in the Acts of the Apostles. If HVPC is a church and not a church reenactment society, then Christ is alive and active and teaching in this place. If this is a church, then this is a place where Christ has not gone silent. And we should anticipate that our church will behave in the very same ways and that it will look very much like the church that we see in the Acts of the Apostles. And if that doesn't make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, then you need to check your pulse. In a few minutes, we're going to gather around this communion table And Christ is going to be present with us in that meal. In the Lord's Supper, we ingest spiritually the body of Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we gather around the table people from all kinds of different backgrounds and different experiences. And as we're at that table, we're one, we're united as the body of Christ. In the Lord's Supper, Christ is beside us as our host Christ is in us as our bread, and we, each one of us, are in Christ as members of his body. He's the vine, we're the branches. What we are talking about is union with Christ, which happens through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this is some genuinely spooky territory, and that's okay. But know this, it is only by union with Christ that we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to live life as a Christian, the power to break the bondage of sin in our lives, the power to be Christ's witnesses in the neighborhood and to the ends of the earth. In the Acts of the Apostles, we will get a vision of what this looks like. We're going to see some great churches and some great Christians. Churches and Christians who did amazing things, supernatural things. And if we attach ourselves to Christ in faith, if we let him fill us, then we're going to do the same things. All to the glory of God. Let us pray. Eternal God, you are our God and we are your people. We are your people because you have gathered us from different places this morning and you called us to be here. You've gathered us around your word. We thank you for the testimony of Brother Luke about these things that happened so long ago. We gather around your table as we obey your command to do this in remembrance of you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've called us here and that you are present with us. Lord, I pray that you would remove the scales from our eyes so that we can see you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts away from idols that make us blind and deaf. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in fresh ways. I pray that you would equip us for the journey, that you would equip us as the church. I pray that you would meet us in this sacrament and that we would know you. Lord Jesus, you are the creator of heaven and earth and you left heaven and came to earth so that you might find us and know us and save us so this morning we pray that you would give us a fuller appreciation of, realization of, sense of, awareness of your presence in this room and in our bodies and in our lives and in this community of faith. Lord, I pray that not just for our own excitement, I pray that for your glory. Amen.